Welcome to ContenderCast, a global leadership and consumer industries entrepreneurship podcast centered on shining a light on bright ideas. And now, here's your host, Justin Hahnemann. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for downloading. Thanks for subscribing and following Justin Hahnemann, the ContenderCast, shining a light on bright ideas. On today's podcast is the CEO and founder of the Runnerton Group. We're talking baking, we're talking the food industry, and you might have and hopefully just listened to his sister with Blissfully Better. If you want to pause this podcast episode and rewind one, you can listen to that story, and they are a part of the Runnerton Group. And on today is Dune. Dune, so great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Justin. I'm pleased to be here. I'm telling you, I couldn't wait. Um, some of you may know Blissfully Better, one of the brands that they uh, their, their business focuses on, wholly wholesome, wholly gluten-free, unique, Belgique. Does that say that right? Yeah, whatever. <laughs> I love it. It's so great. I'm excited for you guys, and uh, I can't even wait to, to hear some of your story and background. Um, before we jump in, how about share a little bit about you and your family and how you got into the business? Sure. Um, well, you know, my father had started a uh, business uh, that was a, a bakery food brokerage uh, back in the early 70s. And after I graduated from college, I went to work for the Kroger Company um, in Atlanta. And that was a lot of fun. Uh, but my father was starting some new things, which was going to take Ruco a little bit more into a national basis. Um, so I left Kroger, joined the family business. And what was a food broker. Eventually, we decided, you know, we didn't really want to represent pe uh, other people anymore. We wanted to create our own brands um, and uh, and build a business that way. So we created the Rudaton Group in 1996. We've been doing natural uh, food since 1978 on the Ruco side, and and we had been doing bakeries since 1972. So Holy Wholesome was the intersection of natural and bakery. Um, really seemed like it was needed at the time. Um, so that's when I joined the company. In, in, uh, I joined the company in, in 1987. So it's been a lot of fun since then. A good what's that? Thirty-five years. <laughs> that's oh awesome. Like you that's grew up in time. the business. That's a long time. It's so yeah. I'll, so this is interesting. So we'll rewind the clock a bit. So go to developing your own and launching your own brands. What were some of the challenges with that at that time? I know a lot has changed, but like surely some of the things you had to address then were things that you'd still have to address today. God, you know I. I would say, you know, if you know, we're talking with entrepreneurs, especially in the food business, the natural food business, you'd really like to hop on a time machine and jump back to back to the mid '90s because in the mid '90s, I mean, yeah, there were challenges, but they're nothing I would think like the challenges there were today. Um, it was a lot of fun. It was uh, building something, and you know, that was when. Um, you know, Whole Foods was really just starting to uh, to get some legs. Uh, they bought Fresh Fields at the time. They were getting right. a bit of a mass, so you could have one customer that could could uh, generate a fair amount of business. And uh, Wild Oats at the time was also growing, and the natural food stores were all kind of um, uh, the independent natural food stores were really getting some strength. Um, so it was a lot easier to start back then. I mean, I remember in uh, in like. Um, 1998 or 1999, you know, going out to the Natural Products Expo and just right. going up and down the coast of California and stopping on these natural food stores and saying, "Hey, would you, are you interested in in uh, in this product?" And they'd say, "Yeah, take it on." It seemed easy. It seemed easy to get distribution. 
Um, I mean, there were, certainly were challenges, and I guess that's one of the things that uh, you know, the benefit of you know, Holy Holy Wholesome started in 1996. Um, uh, you know, the benefit of of uh, of time is that some of the difficulties seem to disappear, um, and everything seemed a, a little bit easier. Uh, some of the sins that uh, uh, or mistakes uh, didn't exhibit themselves till quite a few years later. So it was just. Uh, I don't. I don't think of that as time as being a lot of hurdles. I think it's been a lot of fun, a lot of creativity, and a lot of excitement. I love that. Talk about your food products. Um, and you, why don't we, re, you know, fast forward to today? Tell me about the different products. Help our, our listening audience understand what you guys make. So um, I'll say the legacy brand for uh, Runaton is Holy Wholesome. It actually started out as Holy Healthy in 1996. Um, and, uh, that's, we call that baked foods for the natural marketplace. It's natural and organic baked goods with the, with the biggest items being our, uh, pie shells, um, our, our, uh, pies, natural and organic pies and cookies are the largest thing we do in that. Holy gluten-free was an outgrowth of that. Um, we had one of the people on our education team on the Ruco side. Who was celiac and actually our uh, our vice president of holy healthy at the time was also celiac and they were saying hey why can't we do something gluten-free um and we decided to actually go a little bit beyond gluten-free and do allergy friendly free of the at the time eight common allergens and that's how holy gluten-free started and that is baked goods for the allergy sensitive consumer uh, free of gluten dairy peanuts tree nuts soy eggs shellfish and fish plus the other the other uh, six that are now recognized as uh, the, the 14 most common worldwide allergies, allergens, and that's pie shells and pizza dough ball and pizza crust and cookies and brownies, um, lots of different things to satisfy your sweet tooth or your pizza or pie desires. Um, and then we have Unique Belgique, which is authentic imported Belgian waffles, uh, primarily pearl sugar waffles, which is uh, like, it's like a dessert it's a waffle. It's really, it's a sack. Amazing. It's really delicious. It has a lot more flavor. Um, and then we uh, have finally have um, Blissfully Better. And Blissfully Better, you know, this is a family business. You've uh, you've had a discussion with Bonnie, my sister, Bonnie Baroyan. She invented Blissfully Better. I can't believe what a great do- job she did, you know, creating a product, finding a way to produce it, getting the packaging done, getting a customer. And then she got to a point, she said, oh, geez. I thought this is really going to be easy. I didn't. I thought you know I, I, that that would get it all done. And she realized that there's a lot more to it uh, in terms of distribution, sales, marketing, etc. Totally. So she, I said, Bonnie, we can help. So we treat Blissfully Better as the same as any Renaton brand. They're all our brands. Blissfully Better is is just owned by my sister, and that's I think what makes it even more special as being a family business. It's pretty cool. It's a family of businesses from family members. Totally, I love that. Talk about um, how you guys. You, I uh, thank you for outlining the brand. So helpful. Um, how do you think about route to market and selling in? Like, because each of these is a, a bit unique. I'm guessing the buyer may or may not be the same. At, in the retail environments for each of these. Maybe I'm wrong, but help us understand what that looks like as you go to market. Oh, no, you're absolutely right. Actually, there, you know, there's different channels. Like I, I, I mentioned Unique Belgique. I didn't mention the Galettes, which is more food service. So there's some things sure. that are food service fo- focused, some things that are retail focused, some things that are better in a smaller, specialty environment, like Blissfully Better's uh, 
uh, toffee thins and thins. Totally. They're yes. really a little bit more elegant, more, more fit for a, a specialty store or a natural food, independent natural food store where you have a very uh, specific consumer. And then you have other things that, you know, like, although Unique Belgique could well fit in any natural food store because it's a clean natural product. It happens to be that mass market supermarkets is where more of those are sold. Sure. Um, and that, so you could have stuff that's a frozen buyer. You could have stuff that's a shelf state, uh, a grocery buyer. You could have stuff that might be a produce buyer. It just could be all over the place. And it does make it a, a good challenge for our sales team to try and figure, okay, who's the right customer for this? Where do I go? How do I mix it together? Who's the right distributor for this product? I love that. Yeah. And so do you have to have people on staff, I'll call it, focus on those? Or do you contract that? How do you like, what's the actual go to market around that when you think about all those different buyers, plus a combination of different products? So we have a sales team that uh, covers most of the retail side of the business, supermarkets, natural food stores, uh, um, food service. Um, and that, so that's, that's the bulk of the sales go through them. We have a one person that focuses on alternative, alternative channels, which is, which is like Amazon and, um, and home shopping network QVC. Um, and then our customer service manager, consumer relations manager, who, who, you know, takes care of all the consumers that have concerns, complaints, or compliments. She also handles the little independent one-off stores that don't go through the, uh, would not go through a a distributor don't aren't big enough to go through a distributor so she'll do direct sales there sure makes sense um as it's so you've been a, a part of the business now for a number of years and seen it grow over time um how how have you guys built brand or do you have to or is it is the retailer owning that like how does that work um with the different brands you guys bring to market I would say that is probably one of the biggest ways that that uh, business has changed over the past you know 20 plus years is that um, you know originally you, you know you you get a product onto the shelf, um, you market it through promotion. You may get to a point where you do advertising, whether it's co-op advertising with the with the um, excuse me with the stores, or whether it's you know you get to a point where you're able to distribute coupons. And it was a pretty small set of ways to get it done. And as such, I don't think the 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 retailers expected all that much other than supporting their ad program. Um, it's certainly different nowadays in that uh, we didn't really have, without a lot of money, didn't have a way to connect with the consumer. Right. But because of social media, or, or of course, and of course you did a lot of PR. I mean, PR was sure. actually most of what we did, you know, radio interviews before podcasts happened sure, or, or articles. That was a way to get your name out to the trade and sometimes the consumer's um, but now it's certainly a lot different. Uh, retailers expect you to be a lot more engaged with consumers and to be able to show that you're engaged with consumers. That's through so various forms of social media. Um, you know, whether it's Instagram or or Facebook or Pinterest or you know or TikTok or any of the others. So it's a, it's a there's a lot more opportunity and also onus to engage directly with your consumer base. Now for a company like ours, that's really good in many ways because each of our brands speaks specifically to a particular consumer base, uh, somewhat of a niche marketing thing. So it's really great to have the opportunity to get to speak to the consumer that has that particular need and connect with them and, and uh, address their particular interests uh, and, and desires. 
Love that. And then as you think about new products, what's that process look like? How do you figure out what's going to be the next product launched underneath these brands? That's changed a lot over the years as well, because, um, you know, one, one thing that's a big thing that's changed is that uh, you have, there is less direct engagement with the retail uh, um, merchandisers, buyers, um, you know, at, as they've gotten bigger, their, their, the constraints on their time have gotten greater. You know, I remember, you know, back in the 80s and 90s, there was all, you know, you always would be face to face with a buyer. Totally. Even if there was a broker involved, right. and that would get, leave some time for some discussion and opportunity to always say, hey, one of the ways we, our team always left was, hey, what's missing in the market? What do you need? Right. And that would give the buyer the opportunity. Some of our best products, most of our best products came from our customer who said, hey, I need this. And that would really fuel our development. Um, these days, it's really hard to get in front of a buyer at all. And if you do, it's it's pretty quick. You got five right. minutes, right. get it done. Let me see the one page deck. There's no, uh, there's a, a lot less uh, collaboration. And I understand it because we're dealing with larger numbers. And right. They also can't really afford to take as much of a flyer on a product. They really need something to be proven. Um, so nowadays, it's engaging with our consumers, listening to what our consumers say, um, and uh, you know, depending a little bit more on our own reconnaissance of what we see, we think is missing in the market. It was a lot less concerned about what's doing well in the market and following a trend than trying to find something that we can. Uh, that we can produce efficiently, effectively for a good value and that the consumer is needing out there that is missing. Got it. Interesting. Um, before we hit record, we started talking about just some of the biggest challenges that have been facing our industry the last couple of years. Um, many, you know, we've, we've covered on many of them in other uh, episodes, COVID, supply chain, uh, raw material shortages going for products and whatnot. What about you guys? What have you experienced? What have you guys had to deal with or what are you still dealing with? I think it's all of it. Um, you know, for us, for, for our company individually, um, the first 15 months of uh, 16 months of, of COVID, although there were challenges and I wouldn't want to belittle the challenges that happened to people individually from a business standpoint. Um, it seemed that business went along for at least for us. Okay. Um, you know, we, we were able to achieve a 98% fill rate, which I was incredible. Wow. That's um, incredible. The wheels didn't yeah, that, that was in 2021. The wheels didn't start to come off until, uh, excuse me, in 2020. The wheels didn't start to come off for us until 2021. And that's when we started to see supply chain issues that in some cases were related to COVID, in some cases were related to other uh, environmental factors. Um, and then the back half of 2021 is when the cost of goods really started to escalate. Um, and I think the challenge that's, that's holding on is that uh, you know so the supply chain uh, is more stable than it had been, but that stability has changed the way it looks. And that what that stability means is that um, you better expect your lead time to be further, longer, uh, uh, longer out. So it's not that it's unstable; it's just it's a longer lead time. Um, and that don't really, I don't really expect the cost, the inflation, to abate that much. Uh, and uh, I think the, the the biggest challenge to me as a as a business owner and is that um, it's hard to it used to be life used to be a lot more predictable. You know, you might expect you might expect one cost to go through the roof. You know, at some point, eggs would go through the roof or 
or or wheat would go through the roof because of a drought or whatever. But it used to be one thing at a time that would kind of go through the roof and then it would be bad for a while and it would come back down. Um, I think right now you just don't know what the next shoe is going to be that's going to drop. In 2021, so it was oats. Um, in, in July of 2021, it was oats. That, that really went uh, bad. Then, you know, in 2020, early 2022, chocolate became a real problem. Sugar started to become a problem. Eggs became a problem. Um, so you, it's hard to know what the next challenge is going to be. And um, you, it's, uh, you, I think you also have to where a secondary supplier used to be somebody that you had that you knew who had product you call on if you if your primary supplier was was having problems. Now you know, we have to take a stance of okay, it's really not as we need we need at least two suppliers and we need to give them a decent amount of business because if you don't and your primary supplier is in trouble, your secondary supplier is going to say, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm taking care of my current customers because I I can't take care of I can't take care of them and you. It's so um, true. So it's really changed the way we operate. Yeah, so true. And I mean, like supplier risk has been a big focus for uh, small companies and large, right? I mean, procurement yeah. sourcing in m many of the major brands was kind of an afterthought. And then the last couple of years, all of a sudden, super important. And wait, who are those guys? Um, it's crazy. Uh, okay, so looking ahead, what are keys for growth for you? Um, what, what are the, What's the big focus around either margin or revenue growth in the next six to 12 months? Well, I, we're still dealing with uh, one or two items, uh, one or two of our product lines that we still haven't solidified our production strain on. So one is shoring up the rest of that. Fortunately, it's a smaller part of our, our business, but you know we want to be back to that 98.5% fill rate. Sure. And even having a couple of items that are challenged would hurt that. And you just don't, you don't like to be there. So that's one of the things. Um, the other is... Um, the other is, yes, getting, improving, the uh, working on the margin, how you can fix it. You know, we, uh, at the end of 2020, we waited till the end of 2021 to start looking at the costs um, because we wanted to get to some point of stasis um, and uh, only try and make one increase. And in some ways that was a mistake because we took a big hit on margin in the back half of 2021 because the costs were going up before we weren't, we weren't uh, working on them. But in February, I said, okay, well, now we're going to put a stake in the ground. Here's where our price needs to be. Um, and, you know, working with a lot of, you know, collaborating or, or, or discussing with a lot of peers in the industry, you know, a lot of people were saying, yeah, I, I really can't, I'm not going to put my pricing up to protect my margin. I, I don't think the industry will take that. We decided, you know what, we're going to do the price increase that we need to do to protect our margins so that we can be sustainable and healthy down the road. And what we didn't plan on was February 23rd, Ukraine uh, right. happening. And, right. and then, you know, what we thought was, okay, this is what the costs are going to be then escalating another 10, 20% beyond that. Um, and that really hurt because it was, we, we put our, we put our price increase in, which you, as you, many people in this industry know, take, you know, at least, take four months to really to get through to, 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 uh, to actually put them into effect. Um, so that really hurt the margin and we had to then modify our promotional to make sure that we came out of this healthy from a financial standpoint. Sure. Um, and, uh, so the next, the next year is going to be re really year is going to be trying to see how we, where we can get margin improvements and then understand what happened 
to what what the price increases mean to volume, um, how the consumer is reacting and deciding, okay, how are we going to deal with the fact that we cut promotions um, because we had to? Um, do those promotions go away? Um, do Are we able to improve the margin such that we can reintroduce the, the promotions? Or do we need to say, look, I'm sorry, we need to do another price increase to give the market the promotional uh, support that the market expects? Wow, amazing. A lot to think about. And yeah, I mean, it's, uh, uh, we were just doing some research the other day with a, a group called Kantar, and uh, they were going through the disruption index from the last couple of years versus like, you know, not too long before that. And then just the the uh, volatility index versus what it used to be. It's fascinating to see. And it's, it's setting companies up to have to find ways to be more flexible, like you mentioned, with just suppliers and many other um, ways as well. But um so cool. I always love to ask our guests uh, two or three of their biggest pieces of advice. Uh, as you think about our listening audience, a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of, of business owners and business leaders, um, what would be two or three things you'd offer to them as you think about some of the challenges you've had to deal with in growing a business and growing a brand? Uh, well, I would say make sure you take care of your margin. You're aware of the margin. Um, when I when I when we started uh, the Run at the Time Group and Holy Wholesome uh, back in 1996. I was naive about what the margin, what, what our business model need to look like. And um, for the next uh, 10 years, I had the fortunate situation of uh, being able to hide, uh, being able to stand behind some, some help we had from other business that we owned um, where the model didn't really, I uh, considered like investment when it was really a bad model. And uh, in 2008, 2009, it became clear that, okay, well, <laughs> it's going to come home to roost. So we really needed to dramatically change our margin structure. And I think uh, what I learned painfully is that you don't expect to be able to volume your way into appropriate margin. You have to have the margins in place and understand your margins well enough and, and uh, be able to make the margin you need to make from the get-go and not depend on economies of scale. If you do, it's just a recipe for disaster. And then you have to be willing, I mean, willing or able to uh, throw away the model and start over again. Um, we, well, um, what we did is we did have the ability to have the patience. It took us from 2009 to about 2018 to slowly and patiently work on our margin from the sell price down to the uh, down to the the cost of goods and every place in between, selling expenses, try and tweak it slowly and and move it in the right direction. Sure, um, I think that's a really important uh, thing to be willing to do and to, uh, and to understand what's need to. And the I guess the other thing. The other thing I would say is really important, and I made this mistake for the first 10 years of business, I hated price increases. Nobody okay. likes price increases. <laughs> Although you know, everyone, took them this price year. Increase. everyone took price increases this year. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, we didn't, for the first almost 10 years of Holy Wholesome, we didn't do any price increases because uh, I hated wow. it. And then we, we had a uh, you know we had a spike in, in some raw materials and it went up and I said, okay, well, I've got to fix this now. And went out and put to, at, at that point what was a uh, a ten percent price increase, and we got skewered by the market. Like, and I said, "Hey, we haven't had a price increase in ten years." Right. And they're like, "I don't care. That's <laughs> right. it, that's not my fault that right. you haven't been managing your business." And when that said to me, "Okay, well, you know what? You better do a price increase every single year 
at least a little bit, because even if you don't need it right now, it took us a long time to recover to recover what we needed. You're going to need it at some point because the market always expects more. Um, and I understand why the market expects more. You know, they get pressures on them. Um, but if you don't think that you're going to run into a situation where you need more support than what you have, or if you're not going to run it, if you think that you the, the costs are going to stay stable, they're not. So you better protect yourselves and do it incrementally if you can. I mean, you can't right now, right? This past couple of years, you haven't been able to do it incrementally. But when things are smooth, make sure you're making incremental gains to, to protect against the future. Love it. Great advice for uh, for business owners new and those that have been around for a while. Um, so great having you on, Dune. So great having your sister on, uh, right? The episode right before this one. Um, share with our audience where they can find you, connect with you, learn more about your products, etc. Uh, our uh, company's website is www.runaton.com. R-U-N-A-T-O-N. That's like if you if you have to uh, if you eat too much, <laughs> you uh, whatever it is, you might have to run <laughs> run a ton to work it off. Run Thank a ton you. To work it off. I was going to ask you where that came from. That's great. <laughs> uh, it didn't come from that. It did not. <laughs> it come seems from like that. it would be a good way for it to be developed. So where did it come from? You got to tell but us But it now. wasn't my my, fa- my father. My father always believed in talking to your golf ball. Like the golf ball needs instruction. So he never, he didn't hit it very long, but he, he would hit it straight. And he would, when, when the ball had the fairway, he would say, run a ton. So um, <laughs> that's, that's, that is, that's where it came from. That's great. <laughs> that's pretty funny. I always love to ask where people come up with their names. Um, it's awesome. I love it. Uh, so great having you with us. Uh, love the brands. Love where you guys are going. You got to come back on. You have such great insight and like knowledge. You'd be a great reference, I think, for a lot of new players, new people launching in this industry. Um, but really appreciate you being here on the show with us. Hope you'll come back on and share more with us down the road. Would love to. The Contender Cast is sponsored by Henderson Shapiro Peck and powered by Contender Brands. You can download additional ContenderCast episodes directly via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, iHeartMedia, YouTube, and other preferred podcast platforms. If you would like to be a guest on the ContenderCast, connect with us at ContenderCast.com. This is Brian Benson reminding you that every winner started as a contender.